I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. When you work in cookbooks like I do, the fall is our Super Bowl, if the Super Bowl lasts for three months instead of three hours. And that's because every publisher knows that cookbooks make great holiday gifts. And so we usually try to put on a real show this time of year. And for this episode, we're going to get into a few of the ones we're especially excited about. We've got swashbuckling restaurateur Rose Previtt on her travels through Lebanon, Oman, Georgia, and more that led her to write her cookbook, Maidan. And we have internet star John Kung talking about the confluence of Chinese and North American cultures that created him and his cookbook, Kung Food. But we're going to start with dessert today. Samantha Senevaratna has long been an admired recipe developer and all-around food media pro. Everyone who's ever worked with her at one of the many magazines or food shoots she has under her belt just loves her. And with her new book, Bake Smart, you're going to see why. Hey, Sam, it's great to see you. Hi, Francis. Thank you for having me. So I have to say, in food circles... You are known as this like really wonderful teacher. And oh. it's true. It's true. Like when I talk to people about you, I'm like, oh my God, like I just feel like I learned so much from her. So I have to admit, I was kind of expecting this book to be kind of a, a, a baking 101 sort of book. Like mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. how you learn to bake. And it's not. <laughs> it's not. Not at all. No. <laughs> but, but what I did realize as I was reading it with every recipe, I totally got the feeling that like you're standing there with me and you're sharing your tips and tricks. You have all these little notes and all the recipes like, oh, like for this, you can do this with that. And the reason we do this here is because of that. It's like, it's great. It's like, it made me feel like, <laughs> oh, when I was in kitchens and I would be doing something and someone would be like, oh, hey, you want me to show you how I do that? It's a little bit quicker. <laughs> you know, it's like it had that yeah. feeling, which I love so much. Oh, that's so nice, Francis. That makes me feel great. <laughs> yeah, no, it really it is. But so I want to ask you, though, like, because every page is rife with all these tips and tricks, what are some of, like, the coolest tips? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What that are the people are like, tips? oh, my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I have a way. I mean, I think people know that you can soften butter in warm water and things like that. But I like to soften my butter in the microwave. Mm-hmm. And I do something really weird. I stand the sticks up on their short side in the microwave. And you can do this with one stick, you can do this with four sticks, you can do it with six. So stand the sticks up and then you microwave it and you flip it over every six to eight seconds. Uh-huh. And do that <laughs> until, I know it's super weird and looks crazy, but it really works to soften the butter without melting it. I think there's mm. something about standing it upright. I think you're moving it constantly. You're also checking it constantly so you're not you're not going to go too far. But it's the perfect way to get your butter room temperature within like about 24 seconds, basically. That's that's probably one of my favorite tips in the whole book. Is it hard to balance? Like, I just feel like, (laughs) like, if you're me, I'm like, oh, Sam would just stick this, put it, and I would imagine me putting it in the microwave. I was like, it's falling over. It keeps falling over. (laughs) Yeah, don't you? You have to kind of balance it a little. Sometimes if you sort of like root it down with a firm hand, it sort of (laughs) sticks itself to the microwave, at least in my microwave. Don't do that with foil, too. Sometimes butter is wrapped in foil. So you cannot do this trick with any butter that's wrapped in foil. Mm, okay, so the paper wrap. against that. Paper yeah, wrap of course. Okay. <laughs> well, well, okay, so let's talk about butter temperature because I know this is something that you talk about a bunch in the book. And there's, in mm-hmm. fact, a recipe. I think it's the cranberry. Oh, God, what is it called? It's called the, the cranberry, gooey. the gooey cranberry crumb cake. <laughs> yep. And it, it shows. Cranberry crumb cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I loved reading about this because in the head note, you kind of talk about how a different butter temperature really makes a different effect on the cake. And you originally meant to use it, I forget which one, like because I don't know the rules of butter, <laughs> like with uh, softened, like room temperature butter, and instead you made it with warm butter, and then the warm butter made it gooey. Well, why don't you explain it because you, you wrote the thing and I'm obviously not remembering it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like, so I always make my crumb toppings for cake or... or um, for bars like these with melted butter. And there's something about the way the melted butter hydrates, the sugar and the flour. Mm, it makes a really okay. crisp, crunchy topping. Okay, but okay. then there was this one afternoon that I think I was just being spacey and I ended up using softened butter to mix together the sugar and the flour mixture to go on top of my cake. And 
it melted in the oven into this wonderful, like gooey, caramelly sludge, which is not the best <laughs> word actually. But if you look at the picture, it looks much better than a sludge. It looks better than that gooey, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this gooey, delicious, wonderful, rich, caramelly topping that I had never actually had before on top of a cake. And it worked so well with the cranberries because there was something about the way the cranberries sort of melted into it and it just came out so much better than it would have had I been paying more attention. And so I just included it that way in the book. Oh, I love that. And like cranberries, I mean, here in fall, obviously, like in, you know, around Thanksgiving, like cranberries are so, like there's such a nice welcome spark of tartness, tartness and yeah. sourness <laughs> when we have like kind of heavier, spicier flavors, like sweet, spicy flavors. So I think, yeah, that like gooey topping on the cake with these pops of cranberry sounds so good. Mm. Yeah, it's really, and then the bottom is just this buttery, fluffy, light yellow cake. And it's a great combination altogether. It was a really happy mistake. Right on. Happy mistakes. <laughs> That's nice. That could have been a great title, Happy Mistakes. Happy Mistakes. Actually, <laughs> it happens a lot in the kitchen. I mean, you must know. I feel like I ruin things all the time, but then better things come out of it. That's <laughs> why you're a great teacher. <laughs> like, what, you know, someone once told me like the secret to teaching is 5% knowledge and 95% performance. So I oh, kind of totally. feel like, <laughs> well, I messed you it up, can... but let me tell you why it was great that I messed it up. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that for years and years. Yeah. That's my secret. <laughs> okay, well, here's another recipe that I really caught my eye and does not sound like you messed it up. This sounds very smart, very intentional. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. But it's um, what you call a cake and crout. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which at first I read the recipe, I'm like, what's that? Because crout means like in crust or in pastry. So mm-hmm. it, usually when I see it on the restaurant menu, for instance, it's like usually a, a roast, like a, a meat beef roast. wellington or yeah, something. Beef wellington, <laughs> like in a pastry crust or something. But you have a cake in crust. How'd you come up yeah. with that? You know, honestly, I just wanted all those textures together because then when you have, you know, you start with the bottom, it's all flaky and buttery and crunchy. And then it sort of yields into this beautiful, tender, soft, buttery cake. And then there's a burst of soft fruit on top. I think I just, honestly, I just bake the things I want to eat. And I just wanted something that had all of those wonderful textures in one place. Oh, it's so good. So the, <laughs> so the recipe is puff pastry dough. Mm-hmm. And you bake that first in a pan. So it puffs okay, and it's yeah. all crisp and flaky and layery. And then you pour in cake batter and bake that. So it's basically, it's like a, it's like a pie of cake. It's like a cake a, pie. Yeah, it's a cake pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe what I should have called it. That would have been simpler than en croute. But um, yeah, you can do it in a pie tin or you can do it free form. Either way, it works great. You can use store-bought puff pastry or you can make your own. I have a recipe in the book for sort of a, for a cheater's rough puff pastry, which is really good and really easy to make. Um, either way. Simple yeah. or hard, whatever you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh God, it's it. it I, I just those textures. Just imagining those different textures together, it's just, oh yeah. Yeah. And in it's the book, special. you do it with kiwi, which is also not something I see a lot of baked. Like kiwi, I, know. I love kiwis. I think kiwis are kind of underrated. As a, I'm as, obsessed as a, with kiwi, and my kid is also obsessed. We both love. We can't keep kiwis in the house, so. I figured, and we only ever eat them fresh, usually. Yeah, so I right. just wanted to find a way to celebrate them a little bit more. And so by putting it on top of the cake rather than in, I, the kiwis, well, actually, why do you think we don't bake with kiwis more? <laughs> well, the flavor of them is sort of, it's, it's strong when you eat it fresh. But once you bake it, it is sort of a subtle flavor. It's not. It's not the strongest thing. So if you were to mm-hmm. mix it into a cake batter, for example, I don't think that the flavor of kiwi would cut through all of that richness. Uh, okay. sure, sure, sure. And so for this one, I just put the kiwis on top and tried to keep them a little bit distinct so that you still get a little bit of that fresh kiwi burst when you take a bite. That was the best way that I could think of to sort of keep the kiwi flavor vibrant. And also they're just so pretty. I mean, I don't, mm. I don't know why we don't talk about it more. They're the prettiest fruit with all those different colors and there's like this starburst in the center i just think they're so lovely yeah. so that's why i put them in there they really but you could like, do this tart with other fruits too easily mm-hmm. have you done it with others i've done it with apples i think you need to use in this case you kind of need to use a drier fruit so you wouldn't i wouldn't 
I don't think I would do berries or something like that because I would be a little concerned that they would sog the cake layer out a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like a pear or an apple or something, some nice fall, a slightly drier fruit would be is great here. We'll be back with more from the author of Bake Smart, Samantha Senevaratna. And then... When I was teaching myself how to cook, I realized I, I knew a lot more than I thought I did when it came to Chinese cooking because I knew flavors and I recognized, I didn't know how to read what was in those jars, but I recognized labels. Um, And thank God, a lot of Chinese condiments just have not had brand refreshes since like the (laughs) 70s. So they're all the same. So like, you know, I might have not known what was in them, but at least now I was at the age where I could like open them up, taste them and realize, oh my God, we put this on our rice. We put this on our eggs. We put this in our kanji. That's John Kung, author of Kung Food. Stick around. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. That's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking about some of our favorite cookbooks of the fall this week, so let's get back into it with Samantha Senevaratna, author of Bake Smart. I want to get to another recipe that also really struck me, the frangipan brownie. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> I love brownies. I love frangipan. Fran- okay, so frangipan, for a long time, I, w- I didn't get frangipan because I what thought of it. Well, <laughs> I, wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't always like a big marzipan fan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought it was usually marzipan. Um, in my experience, has been like sickly sweet and has like a really mm-hmm. strong like almond extract flavor. It's like basically almond extract paste. And yeah, it, which and I like love. We, yeah, yeah, and dried. <laughs> but we, I'll and eat like it. many years later, like I would, I like, I've had nice marzipan. I'm like, oh wow, that's really quite delicious. But frangipan, you know, I actually don't really know what frangipan is. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, technically speaking, you're the teacher. Explain what frangipan is for the class, please. So frangipan is sort of a pa- a nut based pastry cream and it's used as a filling. It's used as a um, spread on top of Bostock. It's used in, you know, day old croissants to make almond croissants. It's a mixture of mm-hmm, nuts, mm-hmm. sugar, eggs, and sometimes flour. I don't put flour in my French pan. I like it without it, but you can put a little bit of flour too. And it bakes into this wonderful, chewy, nutty. Yeah. It's just, a, it's, it's different than marzipan in that it's just a little bit looser it's a little bit chewier and cakier and lighter i also like marzipan but for this i find that french pan is just a little more versatile you can use it in lots of different things yeah yeah. i think that's the best way to to um relate to it is if you've ever had an almond croissant it's the filling of the almond croissant stuff inside yeah yeah yeah. and i you know i want to smear that on my face um (laughs) so tell us about the french pan brownie and how you thought to make it um, so that's just a regular cocoa brownie that you make, you know, all in one pot. I like my brownies made with cocoa powder versus melted chocolate. I like the texture better. So it also makes it easier to make because you can kind of mix the whole thing in one pot. And then over that, I put a layer of French pan 
which is just the butter, the nuts, um, sugar, and eggs, and sort of swirl them together. And the two just bake together into the best textural experience of your life. It's like chewy, 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 but there's a wonderful sweetness from the nuts, like a roasty sweetness from the nuts just complements the cocoa brownies so, so well. I don't, it seems so, There, it's like a perfectly made pairing. And I don't know why I've never seen anyone, I'm sure someone's done it before, but I just think it's so special and so easy. Yeah, oh, I love that. I really love the thought of it. <laughs> Is the brownie like a, like Pen, again, I do love it, but it does tend to be sweet. Did you like have to like counter it by making like a little bit less sweet of a brownie or? I, you know, I don't make my brownies super duper sweet. And I think that mm. cocoa brownies too tend to be a little bit less sweet because you're sort of, you're not using melted chocolate, you're using cocoa powder, which is unsweetened. Yeah, sure, so right, right. I think that the cocoa flavor of the brownies is strong enough that it can hold up to the frangipan really well. And also in my book, I have a recipe for an any nut frangipan. So the idea is that you can use almonds if you like almonds, but you could also use hazelnuts or pistachios or whatever nut strikes your fancy. And they all go great with chocolate. Oh, right on. Pistachio <laughs> frangipan. That sounds right? incredible. And also, <laughs> you know, you have to be rich to make it, but you know, I was if you say, are, then, <laughs> then bless it's you. It's a little pricier <laughs> than the other French pens, but it's it's special and it's worth it for for a special occasion. I'd highly recommend it. Okay, pistachio frangipan brownies for the holidays. Right? It is. <laughs> oh my gosh! And you, can you imagine the the color would be so pretty? You could stud it with like little sugared cranberries or something like that, just to make the red and green thing oh, happen. It'd yeah, be yeah, cute, yeah. right? <laughs> or like. We're skipping champagne for New Year's, guys, but I, hey, I made pistachio frangipan yeah, brownies. we're spending all the money on pistachios <laughs> this year. It's pistachio frangipan brownies and beer. Yeah. Happy I mean, New Year. I come to that party. <laughs> Definitely. Well, right on, Sam. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for it. It is a service to the world. Oh, thanks, Francis. And it was great talking with you. You too. This is really fun. Samantha Senevaratna is the author of a number of terrific cookbooks, actually, but her latest one is Bake Smart, Sweets and Secrets from My Oven to Yours. She left us with her recipe for gooey cranberry crumb cake. You can find it at SplendidTable.org. I guess you could say John Kung is a new kind of chef. He doesn't run a restaurant, but he's not a TV chef either. Not exactly. But he's beloved as a cook on social media, where he combines cooking chops, food ideas and inspiration, entertainment, and philosophy in one absolutely compelling package. He's smart, earnest, and funny, and he's here to talk about his debut cookbook, Kung Food, which was just released by the publisher I work for. Hey, John. It's great to see you. It's good to be here. How are you? I am very, very happy. I'm very happy to talk with you. Uh, You are about to go and talk about your book to many, many people. So I'm glad to get you a little one-on-one first. And, you know, I think you and I have talked about this, you and I have experienced this, but I want to get to like the very first line of the very first page of the book, basically, right? And you write about being a third culture kid and how that means now you're a third culture cook. But what does that mean to you? Um, Well, growing up as a third culture kid, uh, you just have this lived experience of experiencing multiple cultures at once in almost like a full immersion setting. So Mm -hmm. that means like, you know, growing up in Toronto and the United States and as well as Hong Kong, like I had very much a solidified culture of my parents, which is Hong Kong Chinese at home. But then Mm -hmm. like leaving as soon as I left, you know, it's almost a cliche at this point, but like the threshold of your of your sure. house, there's a cultural threshold of your home. And then the minute you step out and it's com- it's a completely different world with different language and um, food and just like manners of expression just sure. throughout the whole thing. And doing that every day for your pretty much entire life, it just grants you a certain type of nuance. Um in both uh, nuance and understanding of both cultures in a way that, you know, somebody who might just be learning about it might not have. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's funny you say a nuance and an understanding because part of how I experience that too is the nuance is kind of n- knowing that I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't fully feel Chinese even in the home. I don't, I didn't fully feel, you know, everything else when I left yeah. the home. So it was, yeah, I think yeah. the third culture idea is like, oh, so if one doesn't fully fit and the other doesn't fully fit, well then the third thing is whatever's happening inside our brains. <laughs> right, right. And actually it's, it's, it's a very common experience to have like, you know, an auntie question the validity of your like Chineseness. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. Anytime totally. you come over for a family gathering and you don't have, for example, like the full grasp of the language or an understanding of like certain customs and then they'll ask, are you really Chinese? I had that all the time. But then meanwhile, at the same time, growing up in North America, you're just, you still suffer from that forever foreigner title uh, just based on how you look. So you're not quite, you know, American, you're not quite Chinese. And unfortunately, that led to a lot of people just growing up feeling like a diluted version of whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, through my book, um, I'm kind of saying now that, you know, this is our own unique thing. We do have strengths and um, almost like a creative superpower. We might not have a full understanding of, say, our culture, the culture of our parents, but we we absorb more than we think we do. And I learned that when I was teaching myself how to cook, um, I realized I, I knew a lot more than I thought I did when it came to Chinese cooking because I knew flavors and I recognized I didn't know how to read what was in those jars, but I recognize labels. Um, And thank God, a lot of Chinese condiments just have not had brand refreshes since like the 70s. (laughs) So they're all the same. They look exact same. So like, you know, I might have not known what was in them, but at least now I was at the age where I could like open them up, taste them and realize, oh my God, we put this on our rice. We put this on our eggs. We put this in our kanji. And that was kind of like the basis of like my foundation for learning how to cook. Yeah, I love that. And now here you are and like you've invented recipes that like sort of take that idea and intellectually and like create recipes, right? Like, so I love, for instance, your Hong Kong chicken and waffles. (laughs) So chicken and waffles, like Harlem classic, right? Like fried chicken and waffles, but you've remade it with, well, you, you tell us about it. Yeah. So my first experience with chicken and waffles actually is when I first moved to Detroit in 2007, um, and there's a there was a restaurant and diner at the base of the apartment that I lived in, and I had it for the first time. And honestly, it really uh, set itself apart um, from the typical American food that I would eat in the city mm-hmm. because it was like a, it was like the clash of savory and sweet, and had like different kind of textural elements to it. Like it. It satisfied a lot of my cravings for Asian food in the strangest way. And so I <laughs> really, really, really fell in love with it. Um, and so I think it must have been like like three or four years later where I was like, oh, well, I was experimenting with different kinds of fried chicken recipes. I was making karage. And I thought, like, well, wouldn't it be fun if I like kind of like spun this around and use a Hong Kong egg waffle using karage fried chicken and then seeing where that goes. And it ultimately became um, one of my most popular brunch menu items at my studio uh, that I had maintained before the pandemic. Yeah, I love that. So the Hong Kong egg waffle is it's funny because it's like, I don't know, we eat it like a snack. It's sort of a cake. It's got a funny name, right? It's it's actually just called Little Eggs, like the yeah, little yeah, translation. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, it's it's I w- describing it to somebody who's never seen it. I almost talk about it like it's the opposite of a waffle yeah, yeah. structure. <laughs> like it's not a it it is round, but instead of square holes, you have round bubbles. Like it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, totally. the complete opposite, and they're <laughs> held together by little bits of like waffle twill almost. And we would walk down the street in Hong Kong, and we would tear off these little bubble pieces of puffy wa- bubble waffle cake and eat them. 
And actually, that played really well in with the format of fried chicken because what you could do um, is you could tear off these individual bubbles and then like put the little bits of karage in between two of them. The karage, and make, like, like, a, the, like the super crispy, like Japanese style, like fried chicken bites. Yeah, yeah. super fishy. Yeah, 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 super crispy uh, fried chicken bites. Yeah. Um, but then if you put them in between two of the bubble waffles, you make like these micro chicken fried chicken sandwiches. <laughs> and there's just so much fun to eat. Um, and it became really, really popular in my neighborhood. And people like it was anytime I had announced that I was deciding to make the Hong Kong chicken because it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a little labor intensive, not impossible, but um, definitely worthwhile doing. But anytime I would announce that I was going to do it, uh, it would always be like a surefire thing that my studio would be packed that day. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you do it with like a like a maple syrup infused with like Sichuan peppercorn too, right? Yeah, uh, Sichuan like, and, and and chili. So it's a, a spicy, spicy, tingly maple syrup. Yeah, yeah, that helps. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds so good. <laughs> and plus, like the like the like the sort of citrusy kind of aroma of. Of the oh, peppercorn, peppercorn. Has so yeah, well it works. With maple syrup it does go really, really well, and just like you have a little bit of salt to it, um, you know, living in Michigan, we are also blessed with very, very high quality maple syrup. So I know um, maple syrups don't go by like letter grades anymore because it was confusing, and they adopted mm-hmm. like an even more confusing thing. But if you can get dark, if you can get dark, what used to be like B grade maple syrup mm-hmm, right, right, and right. use that for this, it is extra delicious. Just a little bit of salt with the, the chilies and the Szechuan peppercorn. It is delightful. Oh, that sounds so good. And I love that. Okay. So you have these, these dishes that are, you know, of your own creation, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like, it's like a really a symbol of this idea of being in America and, you know, having, you know, Chinese um, culture infusing you, like infusing your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that you have also dishes in the book that are uh, like cultural um, exchange with like different mm-hmm. Chinese diasporas. Like you have, you know, the jerk chicken chow mein, which is like it sounds like something someone made up somewhere. But that is, in fact, no, in the Caribbean. A, it is. Right? It, uh, like yeah. Chinese communities in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them actually have like history. Well, I mean, like with. With Chinese and specifically like Cantonese migration, like things like this would will are inevitable. Um, so you have yeah. the dishes like the jerk chicken chow mein, and then um, actually the curry goat lo mein was like my kind of like what if something kind of mm-hmm. happened sure. differently with that. Um, but then you have like other dishes that are like just also classically. Uh, like in my mind, quintessentially Hong Kong, but at the same time, the complete, uh, the result is that too. Like Hong Kong borscht was um, a product of like Ukrainian and Russian migration into Shanghai and from Shanghai into Hong Kong. And that just became something that you can find on the street next to like our white peppercorn soup. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everywhere. I mean, like our use of bread and condensed milk. Like it's, it's so impermeated with in our culture um that you know it's almost like third culture has always existed but we just never had a really put a name to it yeah totally yeah i mean hong kong definitely as as an english colony yeah you know on on chinese land you know sort of inevitably was going to have that kind of um that kind of dynamic yeah i want to get to one last thing and in some ways this is very classically chinese but I think it's so interesting that you're into it both as a chef and, and as someone who thinks about the culture so much. Um, but this idea of master stock. Well, first, tell us how you – well, what it is and, and how you use it. So a master stock, it's not like a soup um, right. or anything that you like drink outright like, right, like right, you right. would with like a beef stock or a, or a lamb stock or whatever. Um, but it's like – it's a braising liquid. So it mm-hmm. is like almost <laughs> – it is a method of cooking. Actually, uh, they call it like red style cooking. And basically, you just continue to use it over the course of time. And it kind of enriches itself with the things that you cook in it. So, for example, you can make master stock chicken with a whole chicken or maybe with chicken wings. Or, or, and then, or you could use things like duck feet. The important thing is not to use anything that is too gamey. Um, I would not use fish in it. Um, nothing that is too overpowering. So beef, 
uh, uh, squab is great. Um, but you continue to use it. Like you, you continue to cook with it and you strain it out. You do re-up on spices and you do re-up on like soy sauce and stuff like that. But like in this process of re-cooking, you kind of first like you make it safe. Um, so you're supposed to use it at yeah. least like once a week or you freeze it. You boil it, basically kill all the, all the yeah, you know, germs all the in it. Yeah, bad stuff. And also like salt and sugar is a preservative and stuff. So like, you know, sure. it, it's, it's not the most... It, it, it's like a hostile place for, I guess, bacteria. I mean, mm-hmm. there are documented um, examples of master stocks in restaurants in Hong Kong, like allegedly being like generations old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're literally cooking something in it. They strain yeah. it out. They put it in the fridge or whatever. They boil it the next day, kill off all the germs, cook something else in it. And you just keep doing it over and over and over. Again. And like you have this incredibly rich, delicious cooking yeah well, uh, this is so this is tell me if it's the same thing so um is it low soy low soy yeah yes yeah yes. so low soy in, yeah, yeah, in yeah, chinese yeah, yes. the term yes. is low soy which literally means yeah. old water right it, <laughs> i think so i can't okay so i <laughs> i had been saying that yeah. i've been saying that <laughs> but and you and because, i can't read so we're yeah, just <laughs> because because we can't read um but you know chinese people we, we love <laughs> we love to like switch up tones and stuff so i had been saying lo soy and i think like an auntie was like wait what do you mean and i was like oh like old water and she cracked up because oh, no, we really? also oh, yeah we also really like puns chinese people think like we we, we really love like pun humor in sure, our sure. and it's so easy to do because we have a tonal language um but no apparently that is not what that means oh my god but I'm saying this forever but, i know <laughs> i need a fact I had checker two. i had two i had two but like um but you know it's still like comical to someone who speaks chinese for someone to explain it that way because technically yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're you're technically right um the best kind of right and so it's it, it I wish I looked up what it actually meant, but um, that part is lost in that story. But yeah, low soy is, it's a different low, and, but the, the soy part is right. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I'm going to get a fact checker on this. <laughs> yeah. <I>. Mom! <laughs> but I do love this idea that's like, it's you know front and center in your cooking, it's front and center in your book. It's a great method. I mean, folks would pick mm. up the book and, and learn how to do the seasoning and then just start your own version of it at home and keep it because it makes for incredibly delicious food. And I love that you have this note. It's like, it's like that sourdough starter you started. How's that going for you? <laughs> yeah. That pandemic sourdough but, but... starter that like so many of my friends had given names to and are now. It gave away for adoption. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that it's also symbolically, you know, it sort of speaks to what you're talking about, right? It is something that constantly evolves, just kind of yeah. on its own. And, and what you do the with thing it. that I like to do with it, um, the thing, the way that I made my low site, uh, truly my own, um, was when I started to change not just the thing that I was cooking in it, but the type of things that was seasoning the master stock itself. So I was starting to think like, well, why can't, why do I just have to change the proteins? Um, why can't I do other stuff too? So my master stock not just alternates proteins, but like it, there are, it is also like just absolutely saturated with tomatoes in the late summer. Oh, yeah. And in the winter time, it's all just onions and mushrooms that are in there and and master stock mushrooms are are extremely delicious and they keep for quite a while in your fridge luckily but oh, they God, flavor all the, the umami city. in them all of that umami and then like in the winter time i don't even add like you add a little bit of sugar to balance out the salt of the soy sauce but because like the onions they kind of just caramelize in there and add that oniony sweetness. The onions that come out of there are like extremely sweet. And so I don't actually add sugar to my master stock in the winter because the onions kind of do it for me. But then you have these like beautiful onions that come out of it. Um, yeah, I don't know if they're like technically chemically caramelized, but the effect is almost and flavor is almost the same. Oh, God, I love it. I love the evolution. Yeah. I love the symbolism yeah. of the evolution. This is a lot of fun. 
And in a way, it kind of like breathes with the seasons in how it tastes in that way. Like I can get really poetic about this stuff just because like I love it so much. But like the way that it evolves from the day to day, month to month, um, it's something that I look forward to constantly. Um, but I should also stress that like if you accidentally go on vacation and, and like kill yours, it's okay. Because <laughs> put it in the freezer, it's fine. Put it in the freezer, it'll be fine. But if you forget, um, don't cry over it. <laughs> yeah. Always start over. Yes. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. It has been a blast talking with you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. John Kung is the author of Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. You can find that recipe for Hong Kong chicken and waffles at SplendidTable.org. And even if you don't end up making the whole thing, you should really give that Sichuan pepper maple syrup a try. We'll be back with Rose Previtt, restaurateur and author of the new book, Maidan, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. Rose Previtt puts forth a pretty good case for being the most interesting woman in food. The daughter of a Lebanese Sicilian family in Ohio, she spent her youth working in her mom's catering business, then tended bars while she got a master's in public policy, then found herself living in Russia for three years while her husband was a journalist there, and while in Moscow, she fell in love with Georgian food, traveled all over the former Soviet republics, down into the Middle East, around the rest of the world, and came back home to, what else? Open restaurants based on her travels. Oh, and by the way, also start a social impact wine company, host a TV show, and all that brings us to why we're here today. She's also written a cookbook. Named after her Washington, D.C. Michelin-starred live fire grill restaurant, My Dot. So hey, Rose, thanks so much for making time for this today. I know you're super busy. Oh, no, I appreciate it. I'm, thank you for making the time to, to talk about my book. Oh, right on. Well, it, I am very happy to because it is beautiful and the food looks incredible. Um, and just for background, right? You have lived this very multicultural, international life. Like your parents are Lebanese and Sicilian American. You've lived in Russia, traveled all around the Black Sea region and the Middle East. Uh, I think your love of travel made you actually name your first restaurant Compass Rose, which I always thought was such a fun name, but. Tell us, when you were getting ready to open your restaurant, Maidan, how did you do the research? Because the food spans this you know, huge area uh, of the Middle East and the Black Sea region. How did you do that research and how did you prepare your team? Well, I, thinking back to 2017, when the menu was coming together for Maidan, um, like you said, Francis, I have a Lebanese-American background. And I knew that Maidan needed to pay tribute to the very ancient part of the world where the food I grew up on, that I grew up with came from. So I thought, okay, Lebanese. But really, I love Lebanese food, but I wanted more flavors. I wanted more of a, a bigger profile. I wanted peppers. I wanted other things. So our original chefs and I picked five countries to actually travel to. We chose Tunisia, Morocco, Lebanon, Turkey, and the Republic of Georgia. 
And for five and a half weeks, which was just a dream trip, let me tell you, can't do that anymore. That was when there was only one restaurant open. We spent five and a half weeks traveling the region and um, cooking with amazing women in their kitchens, sometimes baking bread in their backyards on fire, just like the fire that we were trying to create at Maidan, this big wood-burning hearth where we do all of our food. And when you travel that part of the world, a lot of people still use live fire to, to make food. And so we knew that we had to go to the source and we had to go to the grandmas and the cities, as I say in, in, in Arabic, I called my grandmother city, and we had to learn from them. And so those five countries are really the profile of flavors that you get at Maidan and that you'll read about in the cookbook. Yeah. Well, tell me about that idea of, of wanting to cook with these grandmas. Like, you know, a lot of people go and like, oh, I want to go study with or, you know, learn from the top chefs of a place. Why did you not go to restaurants? Oh, because I will always think the top chefs are the women in the kitchens of the Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, I grew up cooking and catering Lebanese food out of my home with my mother. I didn't go to culinary yeah. school. I don't have this very formal background. And then I traveled extensively while I lived in Russia. And I really started to appreciate that some of the traditions I grew up with are actually still commonplace around the world. And I wanted to pay a tribute to the women that taught me how to cook and the women of that region who often can't work in restaurants or, you know, anywhere. And they they stay home and they raise children, they raise families. And that's work. And that's a job, too. And I wanted to honor that and and learn their traditions and their family, their family recipes. Yeah, totally. I love that. So one of the signature recipes in the book and at your restaurant, Compass Rose, is the khachapuri. So tell us about it and how this became such a, an iconic dish in your life. <laughs> it's probably a little too much bread and cheese that I've eaten, but, you know, I don't, re- I don't regret a single hajipuri, okay? Um, we lived in Russia for three years, three winters, as we like to say. It was kind of two and a half technical years, but it was three winters that my husband and I um, lived in Moscow. And the very first meal we had when we landed happened to be Georgian. And all the expats told right. us there's this amazing Georgian cuisine that you've never had, but it's so amazing. And one of the staple dishes, and I came to find out, like the national dish of Georgia, is hajapuri. Some collection of bread, cheese, egg, and butter. And I thought, I love all of these things. This is going to be amazing. I quickly learned that there's regional differences between the dish, okay. but one that I fell in love with and I wanted to bring to Washington was called Ajaruli hajapuri. And that's the recipe in the book. It's a a bread boat, essentially, if you can imagine like a big (laughs) oblong piece of bread, um, Uh very thin, almost as thin as a pizza. You put a ball of cheese. In Georgia, they only use one cheese called salguni. I I feel it's not quite properly replicated in the United States. So we use a mix of three Mm. cheeses. You throw it in the oven. It bakes down. When it's still piping hot, you crack a raw egg on top. You throw on a pat of butter. And in Compass Rose, where the recipe in the book comes from, I put my little Lebanese touch on it by sprinkling some za'atar. That is not traditionally Georgian. That is just my own little Lebanese touch. And then it all comes stirred together at the side of the table. And this was so impressive, and it was done this way in in Russia and in Georgia, that I just really felt that Compass Rose had to serve it this way. And, you know, the cheese was not a small problem. I mean, we really had we really had to be committed to this to, to make it a staple here in D.C. I even went to the Georgian embassy and met with the ambassador <laughs> to ask him, you know, for his blessing and his advice, because I said very clearly, really? I'm not Georgian. I completely understand that I'm trying to replicate something that left such an impression on me. And this man in a three-piece suit with a pocket watch, smoking a cigar, hand to God, like in his office with smoking a cigar. I often joke that I felt more like I was trying to trade arms than I was to talk about food. Um, And he took it very seriously. And he said to me, you have a big problem. Your problem is cheese. It's just, it's not going to work here in America. And so we were off to, you know, like he was very dubious of me. And I said, no, it's okay. And after testing about a hundred of them with our opening chef at Compass Rose, we got to a collection of um, ricotta cheese, feta, and mozzarella that I feel mimics the salguni of Georgia. But if you can, you know, Mm. stuff some in your suitcase after you visit Georgia, I also recommend just using that for the hajapuri, (laughs) but that's a little harder to do. I mean the the dogs at customs they get they you know they 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 they're there to sniff out the cheese so I I don't I don't necessarily suggest it. <laughs> I, okay, first of all, it feels like such a DC thing that you're like, okay, so I'm just going to go to the embassy and uh, talk to the ambassador and be like, hey, is this cool? But in all seriousness, like, what 
what compelled you to do that? <laughs> like, what, what, yeah. I, like, I'm just so fascinated that that was like part of your thinking. Like, oh, I have to go to the embassy. I got to talk to someone. Oh, well, I'm very lucky to live in DC where these places are accessible. You know, Compass Rose actually is a sure. 20 minute walk from the Georgian embassy, actually. And they're incredibly welcoming. And as a culture, the hospitality is unbelievable. And that extends to the embassies here as well. And, you know, I just, well, I wanted to, to give credit to the fact that I knew this is not you know, my cultural background. And I wanted to go to the mm-hmm. experts to make sure that it was like, it was approved and, you know, that I was doing it the right way. That just really meant a lot to me because I know how much it means um, when people, you know, come to me with questions on how to make Lebanese food. And so I wanted to make sure that I was, I was paying it um, the right tribute. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I thought to talk to the ambassador, but I also had a lot of uh, Georgian and Russian friends who were able to make the introduction. My Georgian wine importer is a dear friend and still the person we get a lot of our wine from. And he made the introduction for me because he was so excited that a restaurant in Washington wanted to serve Georgian food and Georgian wine. And, you know, we obviously Mm. believe that, you know, this is diplomacy through food, essentially. And that's what my restaurants were intended to be, places that actually educate you about places really far away. And so what better way than to kind of bring the embassy in in fact, the ambassador has a reservation at Maidan tonight. <laughs> Coincidentally, oh, <that's> awesome. <laughs> literally, as we're talking, um, we've stayed in close touch and they really appreciate this way of, you know, introducing the food to people who may not have been to Georgia or even heard of the Republic of Georgia, which is, you know, very possible. Right. I love that he's coming in tonight. <laughs> he literally tonight. <laughs> um, so, yeah. An- yeah, so another place you write about in the book that um, features um, pretty prominently and is a place that to your point, is is not a, a place I know very much about at all, and certainly not about the cuisine, is Oman. Um, tell us how you became interested in Oman and, and what you saw there. It was really cool. We've been open about a year and had gotten used to our fire, what we call like the stage of fire at Maidan. It's a wood-burning hearth that's in the middle of the dining room. It's our <clears> only... It's our only appliance, so to speak. We don't cook on traditional stoves. We don't have any gas that runs. We have no kitchen with gas, nothing. We have a fire. And so you have to be really creative. It's it's limiting in some ways, but the dishes that are made on it are so rich. And, you know, taste of fire, you can't replicate that any other way. So it was a pretty ambitious project. And I'm fortunate enough to have chefs who have embraced it over the years and even sought us out for the adventure of cooking on this stage of fire. And so one of the chefs came to me in 2018 after we were open about a year and said, look, I found this Omani cookbook. It's in English. And they have this dish called Shua. And it looks like they make goat in the ground with fire. And he's like, we got to learn more about this. But as you research, there's not a lot of information information on Omani food anywhere. So as we do, we got tickets and we went to Oman and we spent a week cooking again in the homes of some amazing people who were willing to share their family recipes and stories with us and teach us some amazing dishes and flavors that we had never had before because in at least in the DC region, there is no Omani restaurant. I'm not sure about New York, but here I couldn't find anything. Yeah, not um, that I know of. No, yeah. it's hard to find. And so we, we still don't have one, but we wanted to at least put a couple dishes on the menu that introduced people um, to the to a lot of the dishes and the flavors. And like you said, in DC, we have the Omani Cultural Center right down the street. We actually did a presentation there when we got back because they were also very excited that a, you know a restaurant owned by Americans was making Omani dishes here in the nation's capital to kind of hopefully inspire people to learn more about the culture and maybe even travel there like we did. And we also had the assistance of the, you know, the author of the only Omani English language cookbook that we could find. And she helped introduce us to people in Oman so that we could do this really intense R&D trip. Yeah. Felicia Campbell. Shout out to Felicia. Shout out, please. I really appreciated her. She was a huge help in introducing us. And and between homes and sometimes roadside stands, uh, the shrimp mm. recipe in the book, um, that came from just a roadside um, they called it, oh, shoot, I can't think of the word right now, like a shashlik in, in, in Georgia, but like the kebab mm-hmm. stand. Miss sure, Miss sure. Cock, Miss Cock, um, is where the, we just found a guy making these shrimp kebabs that were kind of the most delicious thing we'd ever had and convinced mm. him and in, in many different languages tried to translate his recipe. And, you know, he thought we were very funny. Like, why do you want this? And we tried to explain and show pictures of the restaurant. We're going to go back and do it there. We bought a lot from him and, you know, came back and replicated it here at Maidan. Oh, that's so cool. Tell us about that shrimp. How do you, what's it like? How do you make it? 
It's a tamarind marinade. Um, oh, cool. You marinate it not too long because, you know, if you leave shrimp in the marinade too long, it can get kind of rubbery when you cook it. We just mm-hmm. throw it on a kebab. It's super simple. It's cooked over the fire. We plate it with a lime wedge. You absolutely must use the lime for that final splash of flavor. And um, we get a little bit of pepper in there. I'm not going to lie. It can be a little spicy, but you can, you know, take it or leave it as you like. And it's probably one of our most popular dishes on the menu to this day. Oh, God. That idea of tamarind, like that, that sort of tartness of tamarind and, and a little chili and then on grilled shrimp where you get that like really nice like grilled. Um, I love grilled shellfish, like grilled, like that, like that combination of like searing the shellfish and like the smoke and oh god that sounds so good (laughs) i can't wait to make it for you i mean we make like i don't know how many a night probably like 50 go out a night for a tiny restaurant that's a lot but um it's everybody's favorite dish and i think we've you know had just a great reception for these kind of daring flavors i think in oman we learned a lot about the old spice trade routes and why they Mm. had some really unique flavors there that you don't see in other parts of the middle east like in levant we didn't see, we don't see a lot of tamarind, right? Right. But yeah, once yeah, you yeah. get into the history of the region and realize the traders came from Southeast Asia, they, you know, they sailed into Muscat and shared all these amazing spices and flavors. We got some really cool stuff down there, um, like black limes, for example. We also discovered them. And, you know, it just really enriched the food that we already had. So I kind of like to say the food of Maidan and what you're going to find in the book goes from Tangier to Tehran, from Batumi to Beirut, and then Oman. <laughs> so don't forget the Arabian <laughs> Peninsula. Um, but if, you, if you're thinking of the flavors, that's kind of the region that we pull from. That's fabulous. All right. Well, I really want to get down to DC again sometime soon. But if I don't get there first, uh, I'm going to get some shrimp and some tamarind. I'm going to fire up my, well, I don't have a grill, but my neighbor does. (laughs) I'm (laughs) going to hook it up. Yeah, totally. It's harder to get fire in New York. I know that. But um, I hope you enjoy the book. Yes, everything is there. Um, Charcoal is not quite the same as the white oak we use on the fire, but I promise you it's going to hold still those flavors of, of our Omani trip. Terrific. Well, Thank you so much, Rose. It was a blast talking to you. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you for having me. Rose Previtt is the author of Maidan, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. And you can find that recipe for Omani shrimp at splendidtable.org. Well, that is our show for the week. Obviously, with three books we've covered today, we're just scratching the surface of the many great cookbooks coming out this fall. So go to a bookstore, check out what they've got. I bet you're going to leave with some great holiday gift costs off your list. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. 